This is Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring some of the best live talks from the Sydney Opera House. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby. Since Me Too blew up at the end of 2017, feminists around the world are hungry to mobilise. So at All About Women 2018, we thought we ought to offer some hands-on advice. And what better thing to do than program a session that was optimistically named Smash the Patriarchy? The Guardian's Van Badham chairs this uplifting, funny and practical discussion with best-selling author Barbara Kingsolver, writer and activist Manal Al-Sharif and local feminist legend Clementine Ford. All activists in their own right, these incredible women talk about the deeper systemic and structural factors behind oppression and inequality and attempt to answer a couple of tiny questions. How do we destabilise these systems and where on earth do we start? We are trying to smash the patriarchy. And when we talk about the patriarchy in its most invidious and insidious form, it is the harassment, the debilitating behaviour, the marginalisation, the exclusion, the structural power, the exploitation, economic, emotional, the exploitation within the family, the way that women are criticised for everything they do at a disproportional level, the way that women organising and standing up for themselves, daring, oh my God, to speak out is what provokes so much ire. Given that we live in such a desperately unequal global society where one gender is privileged over the other, experiencing systemic advantage of just extraordinary comparison, what can we as women, as activists, as cultural leaders as these three are, do to dismantle the system of unfairness that oppresses us all? So, Barbara, what are we going to do? How do we start? Smashing the patriarchy. (laughs) Step one. Step one. Get mad. Um, Don't don't be afraid of your own anger. And don't apologize for it. In fact, don't apologize for anything. Um, I think that we've been so conditioned to be be invisible, to be um, accommodating. And I, I mean, I'm so sick already of people asking me, has the hashtag Me Too mo- movement gone too far? Excuse me? Is it over? Is it anything over? No. Um, I also want to say that it's, it's really important to remember how all of this is connected to economic power, how um, all of us who are marginalized in our separate sort of minority cultures are all helping a handful of people all over the world get really, really rich. Um, Please not not forget that this is about economic disparity. It's about exploitation. Um, It is to the advantage of the wealthy to be able to exploit the labor of women, um, to um, get us to do a whole lot of stuff for free, uh, it has always been very helpful to have a half of the half of the population of the planet willing to raise kids and 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 uh, do all the laundry and not get paid for it. So, okay, exploiting our labor, exploiting our land. It's to it's always been to the advantage of um, of the owners to be able to take the land that had gold in it, that had coal or um, other minerals in it and say, well, actually, we don't have to pay you because, hmm, you're not 
people. Uh, <laughs> you're something else. So it's all a big plan. We are all helping a handful. Through our acquiescence, we have always been assisting this expropriation of wealth. So we have to start paying attention to the small differences between exploited classes. And just remember that our anger together makes a huge difference. So creating animosities between women and men, creating animosities between city people and country people, creating animosities between educated and uneducated people, or white people and non-white people, these are all part of the plan. As long as we're fighting with each other, they're robbing us blind. That's my take. <laughs> I don't usually think of that as the kind of thing you get to say in the Sydney Opera House. <laughs> Welcome to All About Women, Barbara. Um, so talking about step one is to get angry, and step one is to get angry about an economic system that exploits women. And Manol, reading through your biography, your, your activist engagement is so broad. Um, one of the things that I learned about was your involvement in trying to get um, international workers out of jail in Saudi Arabia, and looking at that as a system of just direct financial exploitation. And I was hoping you could tell this audience about that particular situation. Um, <clears throat> but how that is adding the patriarchal society? How? How is adding to the patriarchal society? You think that's adding to patriarchy, the imprisonment and exploitation of women? And actually, it's men and women. We have the domestic helpers in Saudi Arabia who are excluded from the labor laws. So both of them, the drivers, anyone who is a labor, domestic helper, they're really excluded. So it touched both the men and women in my country. And when I was in jail, a lot of people were asking me, like, oh my God, it must be terrible to be there. I'm like, no, it was good because it opened my eye on something that I never seen, which is 90% of the women in jail were, were domestic helpers. Most of them didn't speak Arabic, most of them. I helped get out 12 of them out. I had my connections in jail when I left, but then I, I was stopped by the government. They said, you cannot do this anymore, so they had to shut me down. We didn't have even foundations to help. And this is one of the things we're working with a lot of human rights lawyers in Saudi Arabia to help. We acknowledge that this is a big problem in Saudi Arabia that we need. And it's touched both, actually, men and women in Saudi Arabia. Clementine, we're getting angry and we're talking about exploitation. What's your assessment of the fight in Australia? Like, where do we start getting angry when we're trying to redress the structural imbalance, the economic balance between men and women? Uh, I just have to preface this by saying I feel woefully ill-equipped to be on this panel. Um, I appreciate you describing me as an activist before, but I, I don't think that I have... I, I don't think of myself as an activist in as much as I'm a writer because the work that activists do, firstly, in awareness raising and actually tackling these structures is so much more consistent than anything I do. Um, and I'm not saying that to be like, oh, I'm not an activist, or whatever, but I just, that's the way that I feel. I also think that it's important to note, um, with all due respect to the panelists, with the exception of Manal, I think it's important to note the limitations of a panel that is three quarters white women talking about smashing the patriarchy. Because the way that we, um, 
I'm conscious of not saying that to sound like I'm just ticking that box because I think it is important to recognise that, that the issues for us are obviously different um, and the things that we can turn, up, you know, the things that white women collectively can and do turn their heads against to not engage with is obviously very well documented. Um, having said that, speaking to the work that I just try and do uh, in terms of, I guess, like the, the feminist work that I do in Australia, I feel like my focus at the moment is really on getting people to question not just the big structures that kind of like oversee all of our lives and, and indoctrinate us, but also how we are complicit in perpetuating those structures. So the, for the last few months, I've been completely immersed in the topic of this book that I'm writing, Boys Will Be Boys, about toxic masculinity. And it's really stunning to me how, you know, one of the things that's kind of driven me with that book is when, when people think that they expect, they're expecting a girl baby and not going into the, you know, the kind of like, we don't really know what kind of babies we're getting. Um, but when people think that they're expecting a girl baby, they, you know, it's not uncommon to hear people say things like, oh, I'm just really nervous about having a girl because, you know, the world can just be so dangerous for girls, um, hence the Me Too movement. But no one ever really says that they're nervous about having a boy because of the harm that boys can be first taught to perpetrate against other people, but also excused against based, you know, particularly as their status in society increases. Um, so rather than kind of, I, I, when I say I think I'm ill-equipped to talk about smashing the patriarchy as a structure, it's because I'm not very well educated about structures. I'm not very well educated about ideological movements that, um, that address structures. What I'm interested in is trying to get people to question their own behavior in their own lives and the way that they kind of um, I guess assume that they're not a part of the problem. And in terms of raising boys, how do we raise boys to be a part of solving that equation of smashing the patriarchy? And I was saying to Barbara before we came out that I'm really sick of this question as well of like whether or not Me Too has gone too far, but also where does it go to next? What, did you, what do you as a woman think that women need to do with Me Too next? And my response to that is like, why do we have to do anything? Why is it our job to first like bleed all over everything and try and like again <laughs> convince people of the harm and the violence that women experience? Because it's not like this is a new thing. Um, there's always so much surprise when like, oh my God, I just didn't know that women had so many bad experiences. <laughs> like, it's not like it's a new story. And yet repeatedly the cycle is that this sort of like international global bleeding has to occur for people to momentarily pay attention to it. I'm more interested in the question that if we keep hearing about all of these so-called male allies, you know, that, oh, the majority of men don't perpetrate violence against women, the majority of men are really good, decent people, I don't see the proof of that. And that doesn't mean that I, I see the proof of the alternative, that they're all actively perpetrating violence against women. I just don't think they're doing anything. So I want to know, what are men going to do about movements like Me Too. How are they going to be active in smashing the patriarchy? Why is it our job all the time to clean up the mess? Um, Manal has a really excellent TED talk that I recommend that you all watch you. about her experiences. It's really, really good. And the question that you begin your TED talk with is, is it easier to change a government or change a society? Who's more oppressive? Yeah, and who's more oppressive? Yeah. And in terms of what 
Clementine is talking about, like, the decisions we make in our own lives. Like, I would describe you as an activist, Clementine, because you work in a form of consciousness raising as a writer. Like, that's a contribution to, to the broader project. And being able to provoke, there are so many women here because they are fans of yours. Like, to be able to provoke that kind of identification is culturally really important. And in terms of, you know, posing that question, Manal, like, what, what is the, if you could give everybody the answer without giving the TED talk away, like, what is the contribution that we can all make culturally to taking on that system of oppression? It's interesting, Clementine, when you don't say you're an activist. You're an activist in every single cell of you. I didn't and mean to open up the conversation <laughs> to, like, but that's, me of that. That's interesting. I think we all should be activists. An activist means to take an action when you see something is wrong. And that's very important, not to single out people by giving them labels feminist or activist, we should all be activists and feminists. But about the, my TED talk, I ask a question at the start, who do you think is more difficult to face, oppressive societies or oppressive governments? And they're both actually, they're both very difficult to face, whether you live in an absolute monarchies and dictatorships or even in de democracies that still, I would say, drag behind when it comes to equity, equality and minorities uh, rights. And the question is really um, about changing the conscious. So as an activist in a dictatorship, where there is no space for us to have any representatives in the government, the, only, the, the social media, we use it as our own virtual parliament, the place where we voice our views, and we raise awareness to change the conscious of the policymakers. But you cannot change the conscious of policymakers if people are still in denial that yeah. this is happening. And I think when we started the movement, it was really like a snowball that grows so big, and we included everything there. Talk about women's rights, no one is listening in Saudi Arabia. Talk about women driving, everyone will be listening. <laughs> so we just go out and drive, and we talk, we bring all the things we want to talk about. It was just like a, a gate was opened for us to bring us all of the attention to just bleed and talk about all the patriarchal society that we live in. And it was interesting to see men being shocked. My own brother, like, he came to me because when I got my divorce, he wasn't supportive. Because of the society around him, he wasn't supportive. He said, we don't have girls who get divorced. Because it was shame for a woman to ask for a divorce. After he read my memoir, he came to me and he said, I am sorry. I didn't know what he went through. And I'm sorry I wasn't there for you. I think it's important. When I saw the, this, I'm, I'm different when it comes to feminism and activism. I use love, killing them slowly with <laughs> politeness and love. And yeah. I, would put, I would put two lipsticks there. <laughs> I mean, two, two prints, two lips prints on the punching boxes, whatever you call them, boxing gloves. Um, one thing that's very powerful about us women that we don't realize yet is we're really powerful when we are ourselves. And I tell my girlfriends always, use your charm. And you, I get with the smile, and I get with being persistent and being very respectful and acceptance of the, the opponents more than the people who agree with me and I really always gain them. You just, what you do is just plant the seed. 
there's so much hate, there's so much anger, and we don't talk. What if I'm sitting there and he's angry, he's saying all this, I was in jail, and this uh, cleric, he called for my flogging in public for daring to drive. And he came to jail to see me. He really wanted to see this Manal Sharif. And I was sitting there, I remember I was wearing great shoes in jail, yes. And I was sitting there talking to him, and he was so mad. He was shouting at me, he was saying terrible things to me. And I was sitting there listening to every terrible thing he said about me. And I gave him a smile, and I said, but that's not me. This is exactly what I'm calling for. He, when he left, he was a different person. And I found out that we really gain with being patient and listening and forgiving. And it's more difficult, really more difficult, to be that forgiving person. To have hate coming from the whole country for seven years. And then when the decree came out, suddenly people started treating me differently. But I, they didn't have anything against me, because I was always very respectful of the culture and the people. And I respected all opinions. Woman, be yourself. Nothing confused the world more than being yourself. For, for anyone who didn't see it uh, this afternoon, uh, the trans feminism uh, discussion was absolutely amazing. And C.N. Lester, like, who's a British composer and activist and writer, made this really beautiful comment, which was, the alternative to patriarchy is love. The yes. alternative, alternative to patriarchy is forgiveness and inclusion and playing the opposite of the values yes. of division. And who's better to give love and acceptance than us women? We're emotional, we cry, we still know how to love and show that, and we're not afraid to show it, we're not ashamed to show. I think that it depends on where your individual societies are at, though. Um, I think that there is power in refusing to kind of play that sort of um, the role of charm. And I think it, there are times when that will be more, more effective, but then there are other times where... You get angry? Well, I mean, I get angry all the time. <laughs> I get I'm angry too. I'm very well known for my anger. But, I, I mean, in, it's a totally different context, but I you know, years ago made the choice to stop being, stop trying to sort of like inch with kindness because I didn't see that in Australian society that it was having any kind of impact or effect. I think that what happens is that people like to be able to pat themselves on the back and feel like they've, you know, they've, you've, you've been nice to them, you know. So one thing that w would always happen is that you'd go to feminist events and the, f the feminist speaking, and I have done it myself, I don't do it anymore, but the feminist speaking would thank all of the men in the room for coming. Thank you so much for coming. It's so wonderful to see you here. Or they'd make a joke about, you know, blah, 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 men. Of course, none of you here, you're all wonderful men. And I think that it has, there is, uh, like, merit in saying that, um, not coming across as being, you know, um, trying to be charming will win some people over. But I don't necessarily know that any men who turned up to do their duty left with anything other than a sense of pride in themselves for sort of turning up. But then thinking, well, I'm not really part of the problem because I'm one of the good guys. She said so. I'm going to um, flick it to Barbara because I have a specific question. Like, as an American living through this particular political moment. Um, I can imagine being, being quite challenged um, by the reality that, you know, the president and titular head of state is a narcissistic woman assaulting, like, dangerous lunatic who could kill all of us <laughs> at any time. 
Um, Looking at, I mean, and the extraordinary thing is, is that compared to Manal's experience of living in a dictatorship where democratic rights are denied, where there are structures of political exclusion, I mean, we're told that America is the land of the free, the home of the brave, and that politically anything is possible if you get help from the Russians. Um, Like, how does, how does that work in the converse scenario? Like, in a society that theoretically offers so much freedom and enfranchisement, and yet, like, literally the worst democratic outcome has happened. Yeah. Yeah, I would say this is an example of the limits to being charming. Um, I, think that, I think that young people in my country had become complacent. Young... Um, People under 30 in the United States um, pretty much universally despise Trump um, and are, also have the worst voting record in history. I, I mean, of all, of all times and of all uh, segments of the population. They just didn't vote. They, didn't, they, they thought things were pretty much okay and that there was no reason to engage with the system. I think that a lot of women... I can't even explain women who voted for Trump, but I think um, probably a, a lot of them did so because they felt like they needed to do what their husbands told them. I mean, I see a lot of complacency and not wanting to rock the boat here, and it. And, and I also want to point out, I want to make sure you know that most, Amer- the majority of American voters didn't vote for him, but way more than, I mean, he's still got more votes than your average, you know, idiot ought to have gotten. Um, so, you know, I have all kinds of explanations. Not blaming you, Barbara. We know you were you. on the right side. Like. What? You don't think I voted for him? Um, now, I mean, I, that's another conversation, how he got elected. But I can thank him for the fact that we are now in a really new moment um, of, of, uh, for feminism in the United States and in the world. Because the day after he um, was inaugurated, it was this, oh, shit moment for, you know, for my country. And the streets of Washington, D.C. were flooded. I mean, you must have seen it on TV. And, flooded with really angry women in pink knitted hats. And, um, and it hasn't stopped. I, I really believe that this was an awakening that we, um, we thought that if we were nice, uh, you know, things would, um, we'd kind of get through this. We thought our rights, our reproductive rights were guaranteed. We thought our democracy was uh, uh, intact. And the fact that it isn't, that, it, it, that all of these things can be taken from us um, by, um, by, by the manipulators, um, was such a shocking awakening that it has um, rattled a lot of people out of complacency and onto the streets and into these uh, new allegiances, understanding for the first time, oh, I... Immigration rights are also my rights. Um, uh, uh, 
racial equality is also female equality is also um, safety for immigrants. We're a lot of a lot. Everybody's showing up to everybody else's demonstrations. So, um, and that's anger. So that's what I'm saying. Um, it's time to get mad. I've also observed since since. Um, since there's just been this sort of eruption of truth-telling that many of, so many of us, so many women were afraid to talk about before, it's become apparent, I think, the extent to which we have internalized misogyny so that, um, and that's, you know, the female Trump voter is just poisoned, I guess, to the bottom of the well. But um, I've observed that women because we're so conditioned to sort of take care of other people first, um, we, there are um, power inequalities that we would never, ever tolerate um, among uh, sort of as, as racial inequalities, as class inequalities, that we tolerate for ourselves. Um, let me just give you a couple examples. Imagine a social contract between men in which um, the non-white one um, was asked to give up his name and take the name of his white partner. Like, who would do that, right? A woman don't do it. <laughs> Keep my name. Well, well, I didn't either. But the, the great majority of young women in my country still give up their names when they marry. Um, I don't know if that's true here, but like 85% uh, of young women still erase their identities and take the name of their partner when they marry. Okay, here's another one. Imagine um, going to a gala where the non-white people also always all have to wear like tight, revealing, sexy clothes and shoes that hurt their feet, and the white people get to dress comfortably and wear comfortable shoes. I mean, like, why do we... <laughs> like this... <laughs> Why, why do we do this to ourselves? Why do we think we need um, to, be, to be ornaments? Why, I mean, we're, we're just, um, we're so deep in this that it's time we, we, we learn to fight for ourselves. Can I say something? Yeah. Okay, I get mad. And you don't want to see me when I get mad. <laughs> I do. <laughs> and the thing that gets me mad is injustice. But the only thing I do, I don't go and shout, I don't go and fight, I don't go and insult people. I go, not that saying that people who get mad do this, but what I do, I take action. My girlfriends, when they come to me and they tell me their life story, I cry with them, I get mad, I curse every single man in the world that he did that to her. And I ask her the next question, what are we gonna do about it? And we always find ways because what I found out in the long, long, long process with interacting with men in my society, when, I, when I'm angry, I build a wall between us. Well, and I, I can't, they can't listen to me. I can't, okay, I'm not talking about Trump. No, no, no. But let me, let's, let's, let's define anger. No walls, no walls. No, 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 no. no. no anger. First rule, first rule is no walls. We've got enough to smash as it is. Well, no walls. No, anger doesn't mean contempt. I, I could not agree with you more. I think that contempt um, is the enemy of change. Does Anger doesn't mean insulting people necessarily. It just means um, taking hold of your energy and doing something with it. Yes. I believe the opposite 
of, of patriarchy is empathy. So if you can take your anger and do something with it yes. that will move someone into a better place, yes. whether it's yourself or your friend uh, or your mother or what. Yeah, you just need to, it, it needs to be an engine. We agree. To change. We agree, yes. absolutely. <laughs> I think um, that, um, when I get angry, I write a novel. Um, it's not, that's amazing. Um, um, so, and that's because I believe in the power of empathy. And what art um, I'll, I'll cut Clementine in here. Okay. I, I just wanted to say that um, I'm, not, I'm not saying that, that that approach is wrong. I just think that one of the problems, and again, speaking about a society like Australia, is that there is this sense for marginalised people that they should be happy with what they've got. And I think in the comparison between Australia and Saudi Arabia... It's the same for I mean, women. You should well, be happy. Yeah, so one of the things that I'm constantly met with yes. from the men who email me when I write about injustices in Australia, when I write, when I write about violence against women in Australia, is always this finger-pointing towards the Middle East. Yes. Why aren't you over there? Why don't you do anything about that? These, you want to know who's really oppressed? It's women in the Middle East. And firstly, these men don't know anything about the feminist movement in the Middle East at all. They don't know that there are Arab feminists because it doesn't occur to them that the Middle East could have women who are... I mean, time, they don't know where the Middle East is and the dead giveaways... <laughs> no, I, I, just, I just want to finish this point. I just want to finish this point. So we're supposed to be grateful for what we've got. And there's always the subtext of if you... You should feel lucky because if we wanted to, we could treat you like the way that we perceive these men over here are able to treat their women. And one of the examples I want to share is everyone in this room would be familiar, perhaps not you, Manal, because you've only been here recently, but familiar with the story of Yasmin Abdel-Majid. And yes, I'm familiar. Oh, so you're fam great. So Yasmin, f up until she wrote a very simple seven-word statement about... Oh, sorry, and Barbara, of course, you, you're probably not familiar with Yasmin either. Please um, Yasmin is an incredible activist, uh, um, a proud Muslim woman of colour who used to live in Australia but has since literally been hounded out of the country. And younger than 30, Yasmin as well. She's very and, young. and last year on Anzac Day, which is sort of our, like, Veterans Day, I guess, she wrote a simple statement that said, um, Syria, Palestine, Nauru, Manus Island, lest we forget. Um, and she was hounded out of the country by, you know, she, not, the Australian newspaper wrote 90,000 words of invective, invective hate-filled invective about her. Um, the point is that Yasmin, up to that point, and even including that status, was a very polite, nice, gentle, well, not a, a very clever sort of nice, charming activist, and she spoke afterwards about that um, the pain and trauma that she felt about realising that the moment that um, you step out of the role of the happy migrant, you're punished by the society that you're in. And that's why I think that it's important to also discuss the limitations of the charm uh, offensive, because for Yasmin, like, she, it, didn't, it didn't work once it became real. You know, once she, once she started to speak honestly and openly and more forthrightly about her politics, the entire country turned against her. The more, the harsher the attacks, the more the impact. Mm. So she made a huge impact, that's oh, why absolutely. she got hot. And for me, I'm glad when I get, I tweeted about, I'm speaking in this panel, and I get terrible tweets. I'm like, who are these women I'm speaking with? <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. My tweet. <laughs> but that's, that's completely fine. And I think, we, you are watching, right? When you have two people in front of you fighting, one 
has the right, let's say, and shouting and saying terrible things, and the other one is being polite and logical, he could walk out of that conversation. Who would you want to be like? You, as an audience. Yes. So I always, when I see these people, I'm like, I never be, I, I'm thankful for all the bad people in my life and the impolite people because they taught me not to be like them. <laughs> but being angry is not necessarily... No, being angry in the, in the justice way, of yeah. course. Of course, this is completely justifiable. I want to talk more about anger as an energy, she said, because she's so punk rock. And um, <laughs> that was too Aussie for me. It's, it's like, <laughs> What does that mean? It's, it's also because I'm, I'm a lot older than I admit in public. But um, I'm still cool. Um, I clearly never was. However, moving on, I want to talk about the, the energy of that kind of anger and where that's going politically. Because, I mean, we can all judge our own individual behaviour and go, like, I'm a nice person, I'm a charming person. I, of course, lost that after five minutes on Twitter. And... Um, but my, the person who I think is one of the great political minds of the world at the moment, even if he is totally evil, is Steve Bannon. And Steve Bannon, who of course was Trump's advisor and sort of mobilised the new right and every sort of like misogynistic Game Boy in the world behind the sort of Trump phenomenon and created the, you know, the famous quote is, we used memes to win an election. Um, Steve Bannon has said that the, the most threatening movement um, to oppose his agenda is the, fem is the feminist movement and Me Too and Time's Up because he says that the energy has been 10,000 years in the making and that if, if that energy is channelled, like the, the structures that have allowed the division and the hatred to happen will tumble. And I just, in terms of talking about smashing the patriarchy, like the, the year that's just happened feels to me like as a media person is consuming media all the time, feels that something has changed, that there's been, there has been a change in the zeitgeist. And for us in Australia where, you know, we had a female prime minister and her prime ministership ended, wherever you sit on the political spectrum, the destruction of Julia Gillard politically was, was not about her political team, it was about her gender. Like, and whereas that was destructive and terrible to live through only a few years ago, I don't think there would be the same backlash to female leadership in this country now. Um, in, not in the, in the same way. I feel that they're, they're, the, the spirit is changing. You have a lot more faith in Australia than I do. That's good, <laughs> keep the faith. You get what you expect. But, well, but something, mean, has something has absolutely changed. changed. Yes, absolutely something has changed. The ability of individual women to speak about their experience and and let go of the fear of being disbelieved or disliked mm -hmm. for the story they're telling. That's what's changed. And it took a million women sort of chaining the links of their experience and saying, me too, mm -hmm. um, to get to this point where uh, we start by believing. And I even think that the horrible back... I mean, the only reason we have the president we have... Uh, I don't even like to say his name, is that, that there were so many people in my country who could not bear the, the, uh, the idea of female Medical. authority. Mm. Um, and, I, and I promise you that's true. Mm. Um, it could have been any man running against Trump and, and he would have won. You can be 
as tomboy as you want. And, and I've been through everything, all the levels, to find myself. You can be tomboy, you can be uh, charming and feminine, you can be whoever you feel comfortable in your own skin as a female. And this is what I said, it's so powerful to just be who you are. And I said early in the morning, nothing confuses the world more than being just simply yourself. And but I you won't get votes. Okay, I, mean I think Clinton, Hillary Clinton, someone I admire, I'm from Saudi Arabia, I read all her memoirs, and I was in tears listening to her last memoir. And I think she paved the way. It's not loss in vain at it's all. It's not a loss, no. The next woman president, she will thank Hillary Clinton she, because she paved the way. She will, and, and, and I really think that if that election happened, I mean, it, it can't because, you know, sort of one thing led to another. But I think it will, I think it, well, I'm seeing already in the midterm elections, all these young women are running for office and sort of galvanizing this support in a new way. So, um, yeah, so ab in absolutely something has changed. All right, I'm just going to flag with everybody. We will take a couple of questions. Clementine. Frighteningly, um, a lot of people, whether or not they support this or not, seem to think that the first president who's also a woman will be Ivanka Trump. Which is not outside of the realm of possibility. <laughs> and this is why you Scarily should not enough. eat cheese before you go to bed. You will have terrible dreams. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we have a question down here, number three. Hi, thank you for the opportunity. My question is about the glass ceiling effect for women. And we know that there's a disproportionate number of reduced number of women in leadership positions. And I'm just curious about the opinions of the um, panel regarding longer term, do we think that a quota-based system, which is probably quite optimistic, but um, would that be what um, is necessary? So hypothetically say, look, there are 60 seats in parliament, 30 of them go to women and 30 go to men, or do we feel that it is about raising daughters that don't accept if they are not selected or not chosen based on a skill that we know they have for that position. What are your thoughts? I can answer this one. Can I answer this one? Yes. So the London School of Economics did a study studying affirmative action. And affirmative action is, of course, the policy of using quotas to promote women and get equal representation of women, to promote people of colour and to look at who is being included and excluded people with disabilities, for example, from the workforce. And affirmative action has been a thing for 40 years. There are organisations and corporations and government departments that have been bound by affirmative action quotas. The criticism you always get of that is that, oh, what about merit? Merit, this magical quality that seems to be yes. overrepresented in white, straight, uh, <laughs> cis, head, able-bodied men. Like, incredible, because it's just, like, infinitely better. Selective talent. I know, it's just, group. like, it's amazing. Um, so what LSE did went, we've got 40 years of longitudinal data, let's do something a bit wacky and look at evidence and outcomes. The organisations that had affirmative action quotas were more productive, uh, were more successful in uh, meeting their key performance indicators. Corporations, the more diversity you have in the leadership, the more financially successful your corporation is. And the researchers concluded that there was one group that got filtered out by affirmative action, and it was underperforming white guys. Mm. Thank you. That has that now been proven by science. <laughs> Can I just say something as well? It's also, it's also important to remember that when, you know, people, not 
the question asker of, obviously, and presumably, and hopefully not everyone in here, anyone in here, when they freak out about quotas and how supposedly unfair it is, merit, et cetera, et cetera, that not only, of course, uh, it, does no one ever question the merit of um, a white, straight, cis, middle-class, able-bodied man. Like Barnaby Joyce, it, no one ever questions his merit <laughs> at all. But we, in, in the Australian Parliament, for example, we already have a system of quotas in terms of how the leadership and um, ministerial portfolios are selected between the Nationals and the Liberal Party, that there is a certain number of, of roles and positions that have to go to the Nationals in order to keep the coalition functioning. Mm. That's a quota. The qu it's a quota that says that the Deputy Prime Minister has to be a National. Um, it's just that no one ever questions the second part of that, which is that they'll just automatically always be a straight white cis man. <laughs> quotas are never thought of as being bad, or even quotas when they support and reinforce male leadership. It's just silly. Mm. Barbara. Well, yeah, it's silly, but unfortunately, um, plenty of, there are still plenty of old white men who believe that that's, that that's who should rule the world, and they are gonna die. Um, <laughs> yeah, but a lot, of, a lot of young white men think that too. Well, I, I, I know you're right about that, but I am very encouraged when I look at, at demographic data and, and um, that, that younger people are much more, in, in my country anyhow, um, younger people are much more uh, accepting of diversity and supportive of diversity of every kind and, and equality. Um, but w what I wanted to say to the, um, specifically to the person who asked the question is, it's not just about raising daughters who um, want to be leaders and aren't afraid to sort of raise their voices and exert authority. It's also about raising sons mm. who trust female authority. I agree. Mm -hmm. um, we really do have to change society mm. before we change government because we, ha we get the leaders we deserve. I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> I actually had this conversation um, with Anna. Sorry. But, but this, this, is, this goes back to uh, sort of what do we change and how do we change? And the anger versus love question, we begin with ourselves. We begin with our relationships and our families and work on equality within yes. our, our, own, our own first circle and our communities. And that seems doable, doesn't it? I mean, we, um, and we begin from a, a position of compassion. I, I, I'm really sorry for the old white guys that are so terrified of losing. I mean, I really am. For, I can only imagine, um, and I know there are plenty of really, really cool, nice old white guys too, so I'll just say that, but I can only imagine what it would be like to grow up believing your whole life you're the, you're, you're the best kind of person and you're the one who's supposed to be in charge and everybody's supposed to listen to you and all of a sudden, you know, pretty quickly, pretty abruptly, all these other kinds of people that that you, you always thought didn't matter are starting to be in charge and telling you what to do. That must be really threatening. You know, I have a statement that I learned from our friends at the NRA, that those men can have my thoughts and prayers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they don't, 
They don't need our thoughts and prayers. They, they have automatic I them. weapons. They're well armed. Flicking here to number one, you have a question. Hi, my question's particularly for Clem. Um, I was wondering if, you, well, you made a comment before saying that you thought that maybe Van had more faith in Australia in particular mm -hmm. than you do. I was wondering... I'm feeling very cynical today. <laughs> That's fine by me. Are there any particular cultural norms or societal structures in Australia in particular that you think perpetuate these patriarchal structures that we should be challenging? Um, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, Australia is built, modern Australia is built on colonisation and theft, and it's also very invested in... Um, in maintaining the mythology of white men having built this country. Um, that in, 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 within that mythology, the, the, the land that existed and the culture that existed for 60,000 years before that didn't really come into being until white men were able to come and, and dominate it. And that, you know, this, this supposition that everything good that exists here has been brought by colonisation. Obviously, I don't agree with that. But I think that the history that is taught about Australia by conservative circles and by mainstream society really, um, really rests on this idea that it's a very masculine, very white kind of world. Uh, and I was talking to someone today about um, Harriet, actually, who's doing the gin-making workshops here, and she was talking about, you know, the, the intrinsic links between alcohol creation and votes, etc. And I told her that she had to read Claire Wright's book about female publicans in, in Australia. And Claire Wright is an historian who wrote a book called The Forgotten Rebels of Eureka. Which is brilliant. Took her 10 years to write. It is a brilliant book. And it's about women in the Eureka, you know, goldfields and the, and the role that women played in that moment in Australian history. The moment that is held up as being so integral to Australia, modern white Australia's understanding of itself. And she told me at the time after the book came out that she remembers speaking to all of these old stuffy white male historians and they asked her what she was working on and she told them and, and the response was, oh, Claire, what could possibly be left to be said about Eureka that hasn't been said already? And her response was, well, you know, women's, in, women's existence. And I think that... Um, <laughs> what needs to be challenged amongst... This is just one of the things that needs to be challenged in Australia, but what needs to be challenged is that idea of... That, is that idea of the white male creation theory that kind of, like, just continues on here. And the problem is that when you talk about these things, because they feel so obscure to a lot of people or because they feel very, like... I don't know, like... It's, it's not stuff that they're necessarily familiar with. They, they perceive it simultaneously as being an attack on their own way of life, which they... In, in, instinctively react negatively to, um, which is not to say that you shouldn't keep talking about it, but they also just sort of like dismiss it as just being kind of like namby-pamby waffling by the small liberal left. Um, I don't think that there's willingness from a lot of people in this country to really question the role that masculinity plays, to question how toxic masculinity can be in this country and how damaging it is actually to the men mm. of Australia. It's horrific. How, how violence... I mean, Van talked about shootings before. Obviously, I'm not saying anything that anyone in this room hasn't heard, but the biggest indicator for whether or not you're going to perpetrate a mass shooting or a mass killing is whether or not you've also perpetrated family violence. Um, whether you're a man. Whether you're a man, yeah. but no one wants... And if you're a white man in particular who accounts for the majority of mass shooters in America, people don't want to talk about 
the role that your white masculinity might play in your violence, because it's not acceptable to characterise white men in a way that identifies them as anything other than the norm and everything else is the other. All right, um, I'm going to take another question. Sorry, I could talk about that for I, a long time. Yeah, we, I mean, <laughs> to be fair, we could sit on this panel for the rest of our lives and not get finished. Um, you're stuck. <laughs> up there. I don't know what number that is because I can't number see three. the number. You're in red. Yes, there's a lady in red over there as well, but you saw oh, me okay. first, so that's fine. <laughs> Thank you for coordinating your matching outfits for our pleasure. Um, so my question uh, pertains to a question that came up on Q&A on Monday or Tuesday night, I can't remember when it was, around the gender pay gap, and um, there was a gentleman who asked a question, please don't shake your heads at me, about some research that a guy called Jordan Peterson is doing. Um, Read, yeah, I read a lot of his stuff this week. Um, I fucking hate him, thank you. Yeah. Uh, more, like, more moronic conclusions could not be made about women's movements by a more moronic man. But um, my question more pertains to the fact that the guy who asked the question about the gender pay gap referencing this particular article of Jordan Peterson's claimed that there was no gender pay ga gap in tech. Um, I run women in tech for a big tech company. Uh, I can guarantee you that I have gone for a job and a male colleague of mine have gone, have gone for a job um, and he was offered 15% more than I was. Um, my question more is not how I fix that, but more how can I educate people in my industry uh, other than just speaking about it? Um, how can I educate men in my industry that just don't know any better? Um. I might throw this to you, Manol, because you've worked in tech. This is your training. And, you know, the situation certainly in this country is that it's a very gender unbalanced industry. You know, what is your advice to the questioner? Uh, I'm a computer science graduate. Women make 18% only of the college computer science graduate around the world. I work in information security. In my country, we're all, in the Middle East, we're 4%. Pretty sure this 4% is in Israel, not in Saudi Arabia. In Australia, it was 11, actually 10, 10% women information security. And I faced what you faced. I would walk in, in a room with all men. I walked 10 years with all men uh, in all men environment. And I was asked to sit next to the wall, not at the table. I would go, pull the chair, sit next to the boss, mm -hmm. like a boss, and the guy next to me leave. And they say, you're embarrassing the, the men sitting at the table. I'm like, yeah, they can sit next to the wall. They're comfortable. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, and in a polite way, I said that. But this is me in my country as a woman being perceived as you are having a job that a man deserves. Mm -hmm. And I missed every single uh, promotion because I've been told my colleague who didn't work the work I did, who didn't get any certificates I got, He's building a house. He needs the money. Mm. So I've been through that. It's just staggering to me that even in Australia and, the, and in the US, we still have this discussion. So we have to come together <laughs> to solve this problem. And it really comes from top management. You need to do two things. Top management really need to have this transparency when it comes to your salary and your male colleague's salary to make sure there is fairness. And it has to come through the culture changing. When I look at you as a woman and say, you're not supposed to have this job, you're taking my job, but I, even I feel it inside my heart, that sends so negative energy 
I was always told that, ah, you're successful not because you are intelligent at work. You're successful because you're wearing the, the, they want to see a woman giving a presentation to show diversity. And that's also dangerous. In Australia, it's dangerous. Mm. When recruiters were calling me when I started applying for jobs in Australia, they said, oh my God, you're a woman in, in, in information security. Companies will kill to have you because this adds to the diversity. I'm like, this is terrible because it shouldn't be I have women put her there to prove, to show the world, look, I have women here. No, it should be really built in the culture and they do believe in it, mm. that we need women to be sitting at the table, not next to the wall. I'm gonna go back to Barbara because this is sort of where we started, where we talked about, when we began the session and we talked about being angry and talking about like talking about structural inequality for women around their economic opportunities for their jobs. You know, I just want to assure the questioner about the gender pay gap in IT. Clem and I work in the media, there's a 30% gender pay gap there as well. And across all these industries in Australia, when women enter an industry, the pay goes down. When men enter an industry, the pay goes up. Huh? Join a union. Yes, and this is what I was going to get to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was hoping that Barbara would actually say that. That was part of my segue about how we, <laughs> rather than agonise, perhaps, Barbara, do you think we should organise? I think perhaps we should organise. Yeah, through labour unions or... Stole my thunder. Your, yeah, 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 yeah. Or, what, or by whatever means necessary, you can organise. You, um, you inform yourself. I mean... I don't, I don't know specifically how you could do, how you should do this, but I know in general, you get your facts straight first, you do your research, you, f you find out what the facts are, then you use those facts to um, generate anger among your colleagues who have, uh, who are uh, getting the raw end of this deal. You get together and then you use that anger to um, either go out on strike if that's appropriate to your industry. I'm really excited to tell you that in West Virginia, which is uh, in my, it's not the state I live in, but it's Appalachia, and it is considered absolutely Trump, the heart of Trump country. It is Boganland, I guess, of, <laughs> of the United States. The um, te teachers, uh, elementary school teachers in my country are generally very poorly paid, and West Virginians are the bottom, they're I think 48th of the 50 states. They are so poorly, these, is, these are the educators of our next generation. They're so poorly paid that they have to have another job um, in order to, to pay their bills. West Virginia uh, school teachers walked out, they, 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 have a, they have a good sturdy union, they've been out on strike for uh, almost two weeks. Um, State's going crazy. The state, uh, state started offering, you know, because the parents are going crazy, saying, what am I going to do? My, the babysitters went on strike. Um, <laughs> um, and those teachers, I mean, they just, they'd had enough. They were having to buy school supplies out of their own, you know, out of their own inadequate pockets. So, do you think they'll have to buy their own guns? Uh, <laughs> they probably have them. I mean, I'm, you know, it's... My point is that this has really brought the country to attention. We haven't had labor strikes for a while, and this one is really getting somewhere. The first, cons uh, the first package that was offered was pathetic, and it was refused. The second, 
like a 1% pay raise or something was refused. They're, they've got a ball rolling, and I'm, 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 I'm sure that teachers in every state are taking note. Um, I feel like it's not just the, the Me Too movement. I feel like uh, labor unions are waking up in my country. I feel like there's, there's sort of a, a notion of political organizing that is, um, maybe the teachers saw all those women in pink knitted hats in DC and said, you know, we should try this. Um, it's a moment. Um, we've run out of time, so I'm just going to say this really quickly because it hasn't come up. But in, in, it's relevant to the wage gap thing. It's the role of men in childcare. We do not ha live in a society in Australia where men are expected to take on the bulk of childcare for a portion of time. And I think that it would be worth looking at a system like Sweden's, where for a woman to receive, for a woman in a heterosexual relationship to, to receive her full 12 months paid maternity leave, the father has to take three months paternity leave. I think that that encourages empathy in men. I think that it encourages the relationship between the father and the child. It also teaches him something about the mental load. But it also reminds the workplace that the role of childcare is not one to be, to, to be fulfilled unpaid by women, but that, that is one that all of society has a responsibility to take care of. Right. So that's an hour. I do believe that we've worked out how to smash the patriarchy. Get angry, get organised, critique the prejudices that you hold within. Like, let go of the shame that the patriarchy would put on you for standing up for yourself. As Manal says, it, like, this is a practice. Don't just call out injustice, you've got to go out and fight for it. Sometimes that means driving around the streets and getting arrested. The things that we have to demand. We have to demand fair workplaces. We've got to demand that our male colleagues step up, that our partners, if we have male partners, that they step up, that our dads and our brothers and our friends and our communities take responsibility for toxic masculinity. We have to raise better boys. We have to create a feminist education that allows all children to be children and find their own way in life. We absolutely have to organise into labour unions. We absolutely have to exercise our collective power to challenge society. And that's how we can make demands about fair pay. That's how we can make demands about a better politics. That is how we can get the childcare that we deserve that is equal, that creates opportunities for all of us. And that's how we get rid of the dinosaurs like Donald Trump and Barnaby Joyce. My name is Van Madam, please thank Barbara King Solver, Manal Asharif, Clementine Ford, and thank you. That was Van Badham bringing down the house at All About Women. She was with Clementine Ford, Barbara King Solver, and Manal Asharif, and they were offering their practical suggestions on how we can finally smash the patriarchy. Another live recording from the festival is coming your way next week, so make sure you subscribe. Ideas at the House is available wherever you get your podcasts. See you then.